Thank you all. This morning, the first Sunday after Easter, we're, we just celebrated the resurrection and we're going to go back to the Old Testament. Now, I was talking with uh, EJ and, and I said, you know, I'm not sure I've, I've probably preached in the Old Testament in like a year, maybe. Uh, and he says, yeah, I remember you preaching in the Old Testament like right when I came and that was about a year ago. So uh, one of the things that, that I guess I admit is that I, I don't go to the Old Testament a lot. And it's not that I don't believe it or think that it's inspired, but... Honestly, the Old Testament is kind of a challenge for me to preach sometimes. Uh, and uh, so, not just because of that, but also because I feel like the story in 1 Samuel really is, uh, it is connected to the New Testament with King David and his line and Christ. Uh, so it's important to go back and, and look at those things and see that, that what we do believe in the New Testament is very much connected to the Old Testament. You can't have one without the other. And so, we'll begin in 1 Samuel. We're going to be in there for a little while. And, and I guess you can call the series Seeking a King, because that's what the book of 1 Samuel is ultimately about, is, is the, the people of God and their struggle to, uh, to really to have a leader. Uh, the 11th, 11th century B.C. approximately is when it took place, and uh, it ultimately does introduce us to David, who, who went down in history as being maybe the, the greatest king that the people of God had. Uh, but they struggled to get to that point. And, and we don't even recognize that point with also, without also recognizing the fact that God really said to his people, I really don't desire you to have a king. I want to be your king. And, and so in a sense, 1 Samuel is about God's people struggling. Uh, the, the sermon this morning is living in God's favor. It's about his people struggling to live in his favor with a king. That God said from the very beginning, I, I don't really want you to have a human king. And that's the story of God's people as their struggle, struggle to live in God's favor. On a much lesser and lighter note, I, I think about Emily's kindergarten teacher and, and the way that she does rules and consequences. Because that's what we think about in the Old Testament, are rules, don't we? Now think about the way that, that she does that in her class. And I think I maybe even shared this before, but she does the color change method. Anyone ever have a kid that comes home and talks about, I had to change my color, you know? Uh, and I'm not sure exactly if, if, it's, if it's clothespins or a chart, but they all have their own little thing that they change, and they change it on a color. And so each of these colors represent something. And, and at the end of the day, she has a little folder that she sends home, and she marks that color and, and usually it's always, with Emily, it's always, it's never been the bad colors, right? It's been the good ones. But, but you can move up or down in, in this system. And so you start off at green, and that's a good color to start off. Green means go, right? means you're okay. Uh, and you can move down to yellow and to orange or to red. And with each one of those colors, I think there's, uh, yellow's a verbal warning, and I think orange is a, is a note or a call home, and red is a trick to the office. Or you can move up to blue, which I think means really good behavior, or, or purple, which is excellent behavior. And, and regardless of what you've done throughout the day, you can move up or down. You know, it's not like, well, you're on, you're on orange, so you're going to be orange the rest of the day. You can move back up to green. And so it's a really good way for a teacher to sort of keep kids on their toes all the time. Uh, whatever they do, whatever they say has potential to move them up or down. And if they get to the end of the week and they've stayed at green or above every day, they, they get a prize. 
And so there's a good motivation there, not only to behave, but it also tells every child, it tells every parent, I think probably most important, right, where their child stands as far as conduct goes and how they're doing it. And so you always get like this running understanding of, of how your kid's behaving. You know they're standing all the time, and, and, and that's good. Because if, if a kid doesn't like how they're doing, right, if, if something's not going well, well it's, in, it's within their power to change it. They start behaving, and they can do better. You know, I hate to say it, but I think a lot of Christians kind of view God as this kindergarten teacher. You know, this guy, and he's, he's giving us all the rules, and, and here's what we do. And he's giving you the Bible, and you're supposed to read it. We're reading the Bible as a church, right? And so you need to learn all the rules, and you need to do what he wants, or not do what he doesn't want. And if you, you keep the rules, well, you'll get prizes. Things will go good for you, right? Sometimes we view God that way. But I think if you understand the Bible as a whole, and that's one of the reasons we're going into the Old Testament for a while, when you understand the Bible as a whole, I think you have to affirm, like Rick Warren did, the purpose-driven life, that ultimately the story in the Bible, it involves people, but ultimately it's not about what you've done. It's not about you. And we understand this as Christians, right? Because we just celebrated Easter and we're thankful that it doesn't depend on us and what we've done or else we wouldn't be able to have a relationship with God. And so when it comes to our salvation, we get that and we understand that and we rejoice about that. But then something happens on, on a, you know, the more mundane level. Something doesn't go our way. Life doesn't treat us like we want it to. And, and then we question, well, it's about me, right? Why is it not going my way? Why have I lost God's favor all of a sudden? And we make that assumption because of something that happened. And so we need the stories in 1 Samuel that demonstrate the struggle to live in God's favor. 1 Samuel opens there the time of, of what really the judges, right? The, the, remember the judges? There was this phrase in the book of the judges and, the book and, judges, and it said, everybody did what was right in their own Eyes. And that's pretty characteristic of life as in, in, in the life of, of the judges period. And I think if there was ever a group that deserved to lose God's favor, it was Israel's portrayed in that book. And so you get to 1 Samuel and the judge, the priest that you see is, is kind of like that. His name is, is Eli. And uh, he's got he's got two sons and, and they completely profane the sacrifices that they're, they're giving all the time. We'll see him in our text today just be totally ridiculous when it comes to, to his spiritual maturity and sensitivity regarding a person. And so we see that same sort of mindset at the book of 1 Samuel that's in the book of Judges. Yet, we'll meet a woman in 1 Samuel named Hannah. And, and Hannah is, is a woman that strives to live in God's favor in the midst of people that do not. Look with me at 1 Samuel. I'm going to read the first 20 verses in the book, and it'll be on your screen. You can also read it in your Bible if you'd rather do it that way. There was a certain man from Ramathim, a Zephite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jehoram, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, the son of Zeph, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had none. 
Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whatever the, whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife, Penina, and all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, and the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Her husband Elkanah would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Once when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant and give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life. No razor will ever be used on his head. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, How long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. She said, may your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went her way and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. Early the next morning, they arose and worshipped before the Lord, and then went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah made love to his wife, Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, because I asked the Lord for him. 1 Samuel shows us how individuals like Hannah can live in God's favor in the midst of groups that do not. And it shows us what living in God's favor is like. That it's not like living under, under the thumb of a kindergarten teacher. That it's not just about what you do or what you don't do and, and, and where you stand on, on some arbitrary scale. It shows us some things about living in God's favor. The first one I'm going to hit, I don't have notes for you, just, just listen this morning. But the first one I'm going to hit from the text is that uh, it shows us that living in God's favor is not without trials. That's important. That is so important to take from this text. There was a song that came out uh, in 2011. It was by uh, a lady named Laura Story. It was called Blessings. And uh, if, if you listen to Christian, Christian radio, it's probably familiar to you, but, but the chorus says, what if your healing, sorry, what if your blessings come through raindrops? What if your healing comes through tears? What if a thousand sleepless nights are what it takes to know you're near? What if trials of this life are your blessings in disguise? Before she wrote that song, that's really kind of what catapulted her to, to fame uh, you know, large-scale fame. But even before she wrote that, she'd been very successful. She, she co-wrote uh, a song called Indescribable with Chris Tomlin. 
and uh, was, was doing really well. She was, she was serving. She was doing what she wanted to do. She was serving on staff at, at, at a huge church as a, as a, a woman's ministry, women's ministry, and, and, and a, a, a music person. And uh, for her, she was, she was doing really well. She had just gotten married. She'd been married about two years. And in 2006, in 2006, her husband of two years was hospitalized with a brain tumor. And they were in their middle 20s. This is the last thing that, that newlyweds think is going to happen. And she said in an interview that, you know, you don't think about, you think that this might come later in life. But as a newlywed, you don't think about uh, what your spouse is going to look like or sound like when, when they're hooked up to machines and they can't breathe on their own. Or, or what it will be like to help your spouse try to recover from eyesight and memory loss after an operation. And I think that part of the reason that song, Blessings, was so powerful is because it came out of this personal experience. But I think it was also powerful because it gave Christians permission to recognize that, hey, part of, of being a follower of Christ, part of, of worshiping this God that we know really just involves trials. And, and it may or may not be in God's plan. It may or may not be something that is a blessing to us that we understand. We don't like to talk about that, but I'm afraid that, that if we don't sometimes, we can give off, give off this impression that, that following God, being someone that worships God, knows God, is all about just living this life that's hunky-dory and always having on our Sunday faces. But life wasn't like that, and it wasn't like that for Hannah, was it? Now, Hannah's name means grace. Her husband, Elkanah, he just kind of reminds me of this guy that's trying his best, you know. He's, he's doing okay. He's trying to be dutiful. He's trying to do what God wants him to do. And so he takes his family and they go to this place in Shiloh. It was the last place in the book of Judges where, where the Ark of the Covenant that they understood embodying God's presence. The last place that it's noted as being. And so they're going up to this place to make these sacrifices because they, they know it's expected of them. They want to please God. But in spite of his obedience, he's... He's kind of clueless, isn't he? The text tells us he married Hannah and he married Penina. And, and it, it puts them in that order. Hannah first and then Penina. And, and so we don't know for sure, but probably he married Hannah first. And, and she wasn't fertile. He didn't have any kids with her. And so in the ancient times, I'm not making excuses, but that's what you did. Hey, my wife's not having kids. I'm going to go marry another one so I can have some offspring. And, and that's what he did. Not everything in the Bible is, is prescriptive. Some of it's just descriptive. And so he does what's culturally acceptable. And, and, you know, if he would have just remembered, remember some of the stories that we have in Genesis. Remember Abraham and Sarah when they tried to have offspring from one of their maidservants. You remember what happened to, to Jacob when he was tricked into marrying both Rachel and Leah and, and the rivalries and, and the bitterness and all that that came. If, if he would have remembered that, I think he would have, he would have recognized some of the tension he was introducing to his family. And, and how much worse did he make that tension when, when Hannah is, is sad and she's weeping? And he says to her in verse 8, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Is it not obvious? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Isn't that what every woman that's struggling with infertility wants to hear? Hey, you got me. You got this double portion of steak. Why don't you be happy? He was kind of clueless. Why are you downhearted? He asked her, verse 8. Downhearted literally can mean, why is your heart bad? It's that same word that, that God says when you give, when he tells his people, when you give, don't do it with a bad heart. Don't do it downhearted way. 
Don't do it resentfully. That's what he's telling them. But, but I think maybe the author puts that in here to show us that if anybody had, if anybody had a right to be resentful and, and maybe to have a grudge, it, it was Hannah. Sometimes we feel like church is a place that you're not supposed to be downhearted, huh? And maybe you've been told that, man, you're so blessed. And, and maybe it's your spouse, maybe your kids, maybe your house. You've got all these great things. But maybe you kind of are downhearted sometimes. And, and you, you feel ashamed to admit that or you feel ashamed to say that. You, you've been maybe conditioned to think that you just need to just to be happy and just focus on the good and, and not let the sad stuff get you down. But it's part. It's just part of life. Trials are part of, of living even in God's favor. And we see that with Hannah. And we also see that, that living in God's favor sometimes can cause for you to be misunderstood. I mean, Hannah was ultimately really misunderstood. We were riding in the car one day. And uh, Emily was, was in the back. And we're driving by that area in our neighborhood that is, that is now this administration building right when you pass by the fitness center. It's an administration building for the, the First National Bank. But remember when they were doing construction on that and there was just kind of a foundation there and there were pipes sticking up out from the ground. Emily points to those pipes and she says, hey, is that how people in hell breathe? in hell breathe? And I said, well, yeah, I didn't know why she was asking that. And she said, well, dad, don't you believe in hell? Uh, well, and before I could answer that, and, and, and I said, well, yeah, I do. She goes, well, does, was ev does everybody believe in hell? And I said, well, no, I guess, no, not everybody. Well, why? And she, and she goes, well, my teacher believes in hell. I said, well, what, what does she say to make you think that she believes in hell? And she says, Every day when the class gets really bad and rambunctious, she goes in a corner by herself and she says, inhale, exhale, inhale, exhale. I really, you know, I refrain to tell dumb jokes like that in sermons because I'm afraid that's all anyone's ever going to remember. But when I look at Hannah and, and her misunderstood state, you almost get a sense that the narrator is telling you this because it's almost, it's almost a farce. It's almost comical, all this stuff that, that just keeps happening to, her, happening to her. Now, we don't have any kind of record of what she says to, to Clueless Elkanah after he says, how come you're not happy with me and, and a bunch of meat? She didn't say anything, probably because women weren't supposed to say anything. You aren't supposed to talk back to your husband. You're just supposed to kind of be happy and go along with things. And the next scene that we're privy to They've had dinner and her double portion of meats presumably untouched. And they approach the outskirts of, of the Ark of the Covenant where the place that they knew God resided was. And uh, she goes in and she has this prayer. And, and she, she asks God to remember her. Those are the words that she uses. And I want to know right here, she, she's not saying, God, remember me because you forgot me. She's saying, God, remember me in the same way that the Bible says God remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And he did something. He said, she's not just saying, remember me in your mind. She's saying, God, I know you know who I am. Now I want you to respond. God, I want you to do something on my behalf. That's what she's asking for. And I think it's important to know that as she's praying that, she, she recognizes something about asking God to respond in this way. And, and it's important for us. Uh, she recognizes that she's not entitled to that. 
That even though they're doing what they're supposed to do as a family, and even though her husband's trying to lead them in the best way that he can and, and take them here and, and do what's expected of them, she's not entitled to God responding to her. And the Bible accords, it accords a lot of importance to this prayer. Did you know this is the only prayer spoken by a woman that is provided in the Bible, the text of it's provided in the Bible for us to read? I think it's pretty amazing. And she says this prayer and in this special moment as she's pouring out her heart to God and she's, she's been misunderstood by her husband. She's misunderstood by this, this other wife that's always provoking her and she's pouring out this prayer. And it's really the point in the story where you expect her maybe to catch a break. And, and the priest comes by and he says, why are you drunk? As she's praying, can you imagine if the pastor of your church, if you're just praying during, during the invitation and, and he comes down and he says, You've had a little too much to drink. We need to let me take you back to your spot. How insensitive is that? If anybody should have got it, it should have been the priest. Should have been should have been Eli. I know that's not the end of the story. We'll get to the rest in a moment. But I think it's worth stopping at this point to see. Gosh, this 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 woman that is trying to please God is just. I mean, she's got three things that have just right at the beginning of the story that are against her. And she's totally misunderstood by so much. And this moment's kind of the icing on the cake for her. And who knows how long that this had been going on in her life. You know, there are moments in our lives as Christians where we're going to be misunderstood sometimes. Teenagers, it's important to recognize that. I know how it works in a small town. I grew up in a small town. And, and you know, all the popular kids went to church, they went to a certain church, and, uh, you know, they would go to church, and then they would act like they didn't really care about church, and, uh, you know, if, if you didn't go to this party, or you didn't participate in this event that you knew maybe you shouldn't, or you, you didn't hang out with this person, they, they'd say, well, what, are you better than us? We go to church, and you misunderstood. And it's a little different for adults, right, because people aren't as quite as forward with their opinion about you and, and your commitment to God, but... But have you ever felt like someone looked at you and they thought you were just a little bit backwards because you, you try to please God? You place that as being important in your life. Maybe you're dumb because uh, you do read the Bible and you place some importance into what it says. Maybe you're just a little bit beneath them and they're, they're smarter than you. The same way it was for Hannah, being misunderstood. Sometimes that's part of, of, of doing, even living in life in, in a way that, that God is is pleased with us. So maybe you're wondering, what's the point, Matt? It's been pretty sad up to this point. <laughs> Living in God's favor, I get, I, get, uh, I get misunderstood, I get trials. Here's what we also get. Here's what Hannah gets as she tries to, to live in God's favor. She gets God's attention. Even in the midst of all the junk, living in God's favor assures His attention on us. Michelle and I just finished watching this Netflix series uh, called The Crown. Thanks to Shelly for getting us addicted to that. And uh, we just, and it, it's this drama about Queen Elizabeth, you know, her coming to power. And, and it goes to just a certain time in her reign as, as she had her second child. And one of the things that it kind of routinely shows as being part of her life is, is this, this what's called uh, when she would have an audience. An audience with the queen. You ever heard that phrase? She would have an audience with the prime minister. And this is a weekly occurrence. And he would come and just kind of brief her on the things that are going on within, within the, the British government. And uh, I always knew this was, I've heard the phrase, but I wasn't really sure about 
the practice. But it's something that happens weekly. And it's not really a time for the prime minister to come in and say, all right, queen, we've got all these problems and what are we going to do? That's not really the point. The point is, is just to make the queen aware. This is what's going on. This is what's, you know, this is what scandal happened over here. And, and, and this is the state of the country. It's not even to, to, to get her to, to make a big decision most of the time. Most of the time it's just so she'll know. And they publish it in the paper. Every time there's an audience with the queen, they don't put the contents and what's talked about in it, but they, they publish it. Because they want the people to know that their monarch is, is, is aware. That, that even if they're not going to do anything about it, they kind of know what's, what's happening and, and that the prime minister is addressing it. And, and it's, that's so foreign to us because we don't depend on that. But to them it's important that their monarch know what's going on. It gives legitimacy to their elected officials. And sometimes we get the impression that's how the God, that God works in our lives. That, you know, he's this thing up there and, and, yeah, I guess he knows everything, but I don't know if he's always doing something about what he knows. And we give our lives to him and he's looking down on us and, and, and hopefully he's involved in things. I think probably if anybody had, was in a place to be tempted to think about God in that way, it, it was Hannah from, from, from the, the vengeful wife of, of the, she's, I guess, her, her partner wife, however you want to call it, from, from being childless, uh, this run-in with, with, with the priest. And, and, and it, says, it says in the text, year after year, they, they come up. And, and so we don't know how long she's, she's been childless. We have no idea. It could have been, it's, it's a lot probably. And, and if anyone is at a point where I could say, I understand her doubting God's involvement, it, it, would, it would, be, would be her. I understand that. And in the midst of her unanswered prayer and, and Eli calling her a drunkard, this is how, this is how it kind of ends. Eli says, when, when he recognizes, okay, she's, she's really sincere, he just says, well, go in peace and may the Lord grant you what you've asked of. I've always been struck at this point that he doesn't say, oh man, that was really stupid of me. That was really dumb. I'm so sorry for thinking that you were drunk. No, he just says, he says what he knows that she wants to hear. Go in peace. May the Lord give you what you want. And, and he just sort of puts a band-aid over it. And, you know, that's really all he has to do. He's, he's the guy. He's in charge. But the conclusion of this passage, at the end of it, is much bigger than a priest that is apathetic. It's bigger than, than, a, than a, a well-meaning but clueless husband. And it's, it's bigger than Penina, her wife. Because as Hannah leaves Eli's presence, she, she says that she hopes, she hopes that she might find favor in, in him and ultimately in God. But the thing is, what we come to recognize is that she already has. She has been living in God's favor, in the midst of infertility, in the midst of being misunderstood, in the, in the midst of of having to deal with all that she has to deal with. She has already been living in God's favor. And in verse 19, God answers and hear her, hears her prayer. And it says he remembers her. Now often Luke will want me to go in his room and play with him. And his favorite thing to play is, is cars. What do you look like? Cars. So he takes all his cars in this box and he dumps them out. And his favorite thing to do is just to roll them around. And he has this mat with these different places that, that the car can go. And he likes to go to different places. And he's, he'll say, oh, I'm going to church. I'm going to work. I'm going to the store. All the places that we go in real life. And I'll get a car and roll it around for three or four minutes. 
and, and then I'll, I'll kind of quit, and, and he'll keep doing it. And, and, and the next thing you know, he's so involved into what he's doing with his cars, he's not really paying me any attention. And so I'll decide, okay, I'll let him keep playing for a minute, and then I'll kind of get up and try and sneak away. Of course, as I do that, I'll feel his little hand on my leg. goes, no, Dad, stay and play with me. And I'll say, well, look, I'm not really playing with you. I'm just sitting here. You're the one that's doing all the playing. And he goes, okay, well, stay here while I play. For him, it's not so much that I'm in the middle of what he's doing that's important. It's not so much that I'm grabbing the car and playing with it or telling him what to do with it to go here or there. It's just the fact that he knows that I'm really there. And somehow that makes a difference for him. And gosh, it's, it's really cliche to say, man, God's always with you, you know. That's, that's so cliche to say. But sometimes the truth is, the only thing you can know about living in God's favor for sure is that. Is that he really is with you. And, and his presence really does make a difference. In the midst of joy and sorrows and, and just the plain, everyday mundane, he's with you and he loves you. Now, Hannah's family celebrated this time once a year when they could go to this place where they knew God dwelt. But as Christians, when we come to church every Sunday, we, we celebrate that same thing, that, that God is in our midst. We see in our celebration of praise sometimes when his people come together, that's where God is. And that's just not a nice and neat little thought. I mean, that's really true. As people that have Christ in us come together, God is in our midst in a way that he's not. Otherwise, when we're apart, when we come and we celebrate that and know that God is indeed here in a special way. And as you do that this morning, I don't know the things that you've kind of drug with you. Probably like Hannah, you have, you have some, some baggage that you've kind of drug in here with you. And this morning, I just want to invite you for, for a moment. It's going to be there for you when you leave. Just put it away for a minute. Just put it away and recognize that God is indeed here for a minute. Right now, that we have an audience with, with the king, so to speak. And he really can do something. He really can respond. If you quiet your heart for a moment and you think about that, what, what do you say to him? What do you need to ask him? What do you need to commit to? What do you need to let go of? You can bring it to him right now. Let's pray. God, it is it's hard to know sometimes that, that living in your favor doesn't always look like we think it should. That living a blessed life, that living a, a life that you approve of sometimes is not the same as living a life that we approve of and the life that we would pick. But God, this morning, would you heighten our awareness of your presence? And God, whatever that feels like or whatever that leads us to do or, or think, God, let us be faithful and treat that. God, decision and official way here today, would you give them the grace and the, the power and the encouragement to do so? We ask.